your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. For the sake of time, we'll simply read verse 21 and remind ourselves that we are indeed continuing in our study of saving faith today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Who, that is who uh, Christ is being referred to there, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. The quotation today is from the Reverend William Gurnall. This will come out of his uh, famous work, The Christian in Complete Armor, which is an exposition, really more like a systematic theology, derived uh, out of the exposition of uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following, put on the whole armor of God, if you'll remember. William Gurnall says this, Here is the object of faith as justifying, and that is Christ crucified. The whole truth of God is the object of justifying faith. It trades with the whole word of God and doth firmly assent unto it. But in its justifying act singles out Christ crucified for its object. First, the person of Christ is the object of faith as justifying. Secondly, Christ as crucified. First, the person of Christ, not any axiom or proposition in the word. This is the object of assurance, not of faith. Assurance saith, I believe my sins are pardoned through Christ. Faith's language is, I believe on Christ for the pardon of them. The word of God doth direct our faith to Christ and terminates it upon him, called therefore a coming to Christ, a receiving of him, a believing on him. The promise is but the dish in which Christ, the true food of the soul, is served up. And if faith's hand be on the promise, it is but as one that draws the dish to him that he may come at the dainties in it. The promise is the marriage ring on the hand of faith. Now we are not married to the ring, but with it unto Christ. Ooh, that's well done. Very well said. So we have talked, haven't we, uh, about those three steps of faith. And we, and we didn't want to do that in such a way that we think there's one, then the other, then the other. Right? It's not necessarily one and then one and then one, temporally speaking. We separate these things in the logical understanding of them, but we understand that they all come together and must be had together, and that's what we learned from the quotation from Reverend Scudder last week. And what are those three building blocks, if you will? Well, the first one we said was knowledge. In order to believe anything, you have to have a knowledge and understanding of it. Right? If someone says, that train will run you over, and, he, and what he understands is, uh, that train will... Uh, um, uh, is heavier than you are. Well, then he doesn't really protect himself from the train, does he? He doesn't understand the, the danger, the peril that he's in. He must understand that peril. There are a lot of truths that we must understand in order to our coming to Christ for deliverance. If we don't think we're in danger, we won't call upon him. 
right? If we don't think he's the remedy, if we think something else is the remedy, if we have some misunderstanding, some errant knowledge, which is not knowledge at all, it's actually knowledge falsely so-called. So we must have knowledge and understanding. We must have the knowledge of who God is, of who Christ is. And for that, you'll remember we talked about Jesus Christ's statements about himself. Believe that, right? Unless you believe that, I am he, or the eternal God, you will die in your sins. Right? And then, uh, that, that was John 8, and then in John 11, he said to Mary, the mother of, uh, sorry, the, the sister of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Right? So there is a believe that. We must have a knowledge content to our faith. Secondly, we said we must assent to that knowledge. We must agree with it. But we also said that agreement is not quite enough, but agreement is necessary. We must agree with that truth. We can't deny a particular truth of which we have understanding. I like what Dr. Clark says about here. It says about assent. He will say this. There was a man that lived that was contemporary to Dr. Clark. His name was Bertrand Russell. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a philosopher of the first half of the 20th century. And Bertrand Russell was not a Christian. In fact, titled a book to that effect, Why I Am Not a Christian. And in that book, Bertrand Russell uh, evinces an understanding of the Christian faith that goes way beyond most folks in the pew. So he had the knowledge and understanding, but he didn't assent. He didn't say, yes, these things are true. Uh, asked toward the end of his life, what if you get... What if you die and you stand before God and you tell and, and he asks you, why didn't you believe in me? Bertrand Russell was left or known to say, well, I guess I'm just going to have to tell him you didn't give me enough information. No, it wasn't an information problem, Mr. Russell. It was a will problem. It is with our wills that we assent. We say, yes, this is true. And then there are some, as we said last week, that want to leave it at that. But we have seen, scripturally speaking, that there's all kinds of assent to truth that goes on all over the Bible. In fact, some truths that some have embraced as saving truths, yet those being embraced in others of them, for instance, in Pharaoh, to flee from the wrath of God in the hail, that was not a saving truth for him, was it? Because he did not cast himself upon Christ. He did not cast himself upon that God who was bringing those judgments. He did not ask for mercy. He even confessed he was a sinner. He acknowledged that. So, beloved, we have this third step then, this third building block of faith, and we call it trust. The Latin word is fiducia. We get our, our word, you know, putting something in trust from that. Right? A, a fiduciary. Someone who handles a trust for us. So the word trust then is this, is this last step, this last building block of true faith that we want to talk about today. And I think this is really important. And let me tell you why. If we leave faith in the mental, it becomes so spiritual and even mystical that it becomes a difficult proposition for us. It's like what I've likened before as soap in the shower, right? 
Now, we, we all use squirt soaps anymore, at least some of us do, and so you, you don't really know what I'm talking about when I say soap in the shower. But it used to be that you have a bar of soap, and you get that bar of soap wet, and what happens? You try to grab onto it, and it goes whoop out of your hand. It falls on the, on the, you know, the floor of the shower. You bend down, you try to pick it up, you get it halfway up, and whoop out of your hand. It goes again. Something very slippery, in other words. Right? If we leave faith in that only mental conception in that way, and by the way, the Lord does not, because he condescends to us. We, we then begin to understand that faith can become overly mystical and hard to get a grip on. But what the Lord has done in his word is he has condescended to us and given us all of these verbs of motion with regard to faith that help us in our understanding to make faith that is true, saving, justifying faith, more objective to us. We can actually get a better grip on it, in other words. And this is a part of God's condescension to us. This is part of God knowing his children and our propensity to doubt. We have a propensity of doubting, don't we? There are some who carnally, sinfully, um, have a propensity toward assurance that they ought not to have. Right? But God's spiritual children... Those who have hearts purified by faith. Those who know the depths of their own sins. Aren't we rather prone in some cases to doubt? To look upon our sins and wonder. Well that's because we get our eyes off of Christ. And what these verbs of motion do. In that the Bible presents them as, uh, as what faith is. They help us with that. This is God's great condescension to us to grant us more assurance than we would otherwise have if it was left in the mental, spiritual, mystical realm. And so God takes pains with us. He, as we said earlier, rouses himself up to condescend to us in these verbs of motion teaching us what faith is like. That we may ask ourselves the questions with regard to those movements or motions. He will put those motions upon our soul. Is this a movement that your soul has had? Is this a, a direction that your soul has turned? And in thinking of it that way and in examining ourselves according to those things, we get something <clears throat> that is at least a little bit more objective than leaving it in the mystical realm. And let me show you what I mean. Turn with me in the first instance to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Sorry, not chapter 10, chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, we're in the what, what, what many interpreters have called the prologue. The prologue to the gospel, verses 1 through 14. Speaking of these grand, large, spiritual things that are unseen. Right? We begin our reading in verse 10. He, that is Christ the Logos, was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, 
To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, this is a very important thing, isn't it? Notice that John will, will put a, an everyday activity here for faith. The, the verb of motion that he uses is receive. I think you know what it means to receive. I think we can, that that's a word we can say, yeah, I can, I can catch on to that. I know what it means to receive. That means that someone or something has held out something to me and I have received it. Now, we, we, we don't want to get, we don't want to forget knowledge and we don't want to forget assent, but we want to finish those out with receipt. What does it mean to receive Christ? It means to accept whatever it is that the Bible says about him in, a, in, a, um, in an account of who Christ is, and yet a growing account of who Christ is. As we learn who he is more deeply, more fully, as we gain more understanding. Whatever is revealed in Scripture about Jesus Christ, it is that one that we receive. And notice it is not receiving propositions about him only, but it is receiving him, as many as received him. It doesn't mean only to receive the truth of these propositions, right? Like Gurnall said, that's the dish in which they're delivered. What's in the dish? Christ himself. And so if we receive those things by way of assent, that's like taking hold of the dish and bringing it close so that we might partake of the dainties in the dish. We might commune with Christ himself. I've used this illustration before in this series. We'll remember that in the 80s, especially in Southern California, there was a theological dust-up among the evangelical church. It was occasioned by a book that was written by a prominent pastor in Southern California, and it was called The Gospel According to Jesus. Um, the Gospel According to Jesus was written as a combat against easy believism. Whether you could receive Jesus as Savior and not receive Jesus as Lord, and whether that was actual saving faith. That was the question that was asked and answered in that book. Some of the answers given in that book were extra scriptural, beyond scripture. But that the question was raised tells us the deficiency of the understanding of saving faith in the evangelical church of the 80s in that you could receive Jesus as something that he is and something else um, that he is not. Or you could deny something that Jesus is. To receive Christ is to receive him as he is. To receive him as Savior, as Lord, as Creator, as I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? That's incongruous. That's the talk is cheap. 
principle. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. Now, notice also that John will go on to identify, in other words, make equal, receiving him with believing in him. Listen to what it says. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God, even or just as, in the same way, those that believe on his name. To receive him and to believe in him in this passage is the same thing. God has taken that concept of faith and he's helped us by boiling it down to a verb of motion, receiving him. So we would say that Christ is preached. How is he preached? If Christ is preached as a a really awesome teacher, that's not enough. That's not saving truth. That's not Christ. He's more than a really awesome teacher. He's really more than a guy that has a good moral system. He's really, he's really more than a good example. What is he? He's the great I am. He is the resurrection and the life. He's the bread which came down from heaven that if a man eat of him, what? He will live forever. Right? John 6. In other words, all of those wondrous statements about who Christ is, it is receiving Christ in all of that. And it's not a stopping short of anything that Christ has revealed himself to be in the word of God. So the question is, can you have Jesus as Savior and not have Jesus as Lord really needs to be responded to with another question, putting that person back in their proper place. Do you really want to receive a Jesus that doesn't exist? Because the Jesus that is Savior but not Lord simply doesn't exist. The Jesus that is Savior but not the eternal God simply doesn't exist. The Jesus that is... Savior, but doesn't care if you keep his law or not, simply doesn't exist. He's a figment of your own imagination. You've made up the Jesus down the street who cannot save, does not save, and doesn't exist. He's an idol. He's not Christ. But as many as received him in all of his divine and human Attributes in all of his glory, in all of his mediation, in all of his labor, in all of his cross work, in all of his sacrifice, in all of his resurrection, in all of his sitting at the right hand of God, in all that who he is, receiving him is indeed to believe. It is taking those truths that have been presented and say, Yes, I receive Christ, the true, the whole Christ. I receive him. And so putting it in those terms, notice how this ends up being something that is uh, a a relief, if you will, from something that is only mystical. Now we have a verb of motion. Have you taken that Christ to yourself? Have Have you brought, and we'll see other terms, not only receiving here. We start with this one because John equates receiving and believing. These are the same things, John will say. And so, what is it not to receive him? 
Notice verse 11. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Okay, what does it mean that they received him not? What did Nicodemus say to Christ two chapters later? Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no one could do these works that thou doest except God be with him. You know what that class says? That's put in a category here by John 1.11. You know what that category is? Not receiving Christ. Believing that he is a teacher come from God is, beloved, not receiving Christ. All the Pharisees believe that. And yet Christ will go on in that passage. And in your King James English, this becomes very clear. All you Pharisees need to be born again. All of you. Marvel not that I said unto thee, singular Nicodemus, ye, all you Pharisees, all the, all the we that sent you to me, all you Pharisees must be born again. You have not yet received Christ. So, it is important, isn't it, that we, that we hear this verb of motion because putting it in the, in the ephemeral Putting it in the mirror set. Oh, we ascent, Jesus. Certainly you're a teacher. Come from God. It's not saving truth. And it's not to receive the whole Christ. Um, the other thing that I, that I want to make note of here is that the prepositions are different in the original language. I don't want to go into too deep a language lesson. But... Remember when we were talking about uh, knowledge, we said it's believe that. There's a particular body of knowledge that, ha- that is characterized as that. Okay, with assent, we say believe in. But with this next verb, this, this verb of trust or trusting in Christ, we always say, in, or the Bible always puts it out to us as believe into or unto. It presents a preposition of motion. It is a coming to Christ. It is a receiving of him. Even to them that believed upon him. It's no longer in. It's something beyond that. It takes away, if you will, the space between the believer and Christ. Can I say it that way? Does that help? It takes away the space between the believer and Christ. You can believe in something from a distance, but you can't believe unto something from a distance. You can't believe upon something from a distance. And so it takes away the space. This kind of faith draws us and unites us to Christ himself. And so we have these verbs of motion that are, I think, most helpful and most comforting. And so believing and receiving are said to be the same thing. Um, Receiving Christ appears elsewhere in Scripture. It's not just here in John. Let's look at other examples of that. So we'll turn to Mark chapter 9. Verse 33, and he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? 
but they held their peace. For, by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. Notice the chain of receipt there. Jesus will say, to receive a child in my name. And of course the context there is taking the most humble of people because they had self-aggrandized, hadn't they? They, they were arguing, who, which one of them is going to be the greatest? You know, Jesus is coming in his kingdom. And when he comes, some of us are going to be more important than, the, than others of us. Which one of us is going to be the greatest in that kingdom? Who's going to sit at the right hand and at the left hand of Christ? Who's going to be his go-to guys when that time comes? That's, that's what they were disputing in a way. And we think of that as obscene, don't we? Well, the reason we think of it as obscene is because we have this instruction from Christ. And so what does Christ say? Well, he takes the one, one of the most humble there that's in their midst, a child. And he says, if you receive this child in my name, you receive me. What does he mean by receiving me there? He means receiving all that I am and all that I've taught you, receiving your own humility, my greatness, receiving my kingdom and all that I will be, and you will stop pressing your own authority in my kingdom. You will humble yourself as you receive a little one like this. And if you receive me, you receive the one who sent me. It's impossible to receive Christ without also in Christ receiving the Father. So notice that word receiving and how deep and rich it truly is. It is a verb of motion, but it's, you know, hey, I handed him an envelope and he received it. It's a lot more than that, isn't it? Yet, it is that verb of motion and there is that analogy between those two uses so that we can understand what it is that we're receiving and what it is to receive or to believe upon Jesus Christ. We look also at uh, Matthew chapter 8 for a moment. Verse 19. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Hope I'm in the right spot here. I think I am. And when he was entered into a house, oh, sorry, into the ship, his, I, I think I'm in the wrong chapter. Forgive me, beloved. Let me, let's just turn over to, to the next page, Matthew 9. Oh, well, that's why 
I'm looking at the wrong list. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. I'm sorry, I'm way out of sorts here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. We'll, we will close receiving and move on to the next verb. And that's what that set of verses was, was about. I was looking at the wrong line in my notes. I apologize. Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 1. For I would that you knew the great conflict or what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. He's going to go on to say, beware lest any man spoil you by separating you from that understanding that you have of Christ by separating you from your receipt of Christ walking in him. And so notice here then to receive Christ is to walk in him, to be rooted in him, um, to, uh, uh, to be uh, in no case driven away from him and to be complete in him. And yet it is also styled as faith, right? Beholding your order and the steadfastness of your Faith in Christ, as ye therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. So once again, receiving Christ is put for faith. And now we have a lot of other verbs that help us with that faith, what it is. It is to be rooted in Christ. That is to be fixed in him. It is to walk in him. That is to conduct ourselves as those who have received him. The whole Christ, all of who he is. And then also not separated from him in any way and being complete in him. So that's the first, to receive Christ. The second is to follow him, to follow Christ. This is another one of those verbs of motion that pertain to faith in Scripture. Okay, We say believe in Christ. We say uh, receive Christ. And we also say follow Christ. So in Matthew... Chapter 4 is where we begin. And I'll try to keep myself uh, sorted here. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. In the ancient Near East, I think we're somewhat divorced from this, but in the ancient Near East, what, it, what just happened in that passage is nothing short of remarkable. They have left their livelihood. They've left their jobs. They've left their father's house. 
They've left their homes. They've separated themselves from their former life and they have started following Jesus. Why would they do that? Because following and believing here are put for the same thing. They believe in Jesus Christ, so they follow him. Now, we will note the supernatural nature of this. Jesus is simply walking by. It may be that they had heard of him before. It may not be. The, The text doesn't really tell us. All they hear from Christ is, follow me, and they, off we go. We're ready to go. They leave their father and their nets. And Jesus told them what it was about. He said, if you follow me, you'll be fishers of men, not fish anymore. I have something new for you to do. And they followed him. This is uh, made even more poignant, isn't it, in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 1. Verily, verily, I say... Unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and he leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. In verse 27, Jesus will say it this way. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. In John chapter 12, verse 26, verse 23 is where we'll start. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. And finally, in chapter 21 of the same gospel, Jesus restores Peter through those three questions, lovest thou me? Then in verse 19, he tells Peter that he's going to die a martyr's death. In verse, that's in verse 18. And then in verse 19, we pick up the reading. This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is, uh, which is he that betrayeth thee? Jesus seeing, or sorry, Peter seeing him saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, 
If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Follow me. And so this term following is also put for faith in Jesus Christ. And again, it helps us in that verb of motion to round out what faith is. It is a following of Christ. It is not only a receiving of all that he is, right? So you're reading along in the Bible and you hear that, that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. You receive that. You receive that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that he died for sinners, that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. All of that you receive. But now Jesus is going to say something else about faith in this word following. Will you follow me, he says. And by following, we have two particular actions. Will you forsake all others? Will you forsake the voice of strangers and follow me? This is where people get tripped up. They want to say, well, no, 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 no. Pastor, now you're requiring works. If you're not following Christ, that means uh, that... You could still believe in Christ and not follow him. I don't think so. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I think that following is put as one of those verbs uh, instead of faith. And so when Jesus calls the sons of Zebedee, when he charges Peter here at the end of his life on earth, what does he say? He says, follow me. He doesn't say believe in me. He says, follow me. Because if we receive Christ, that he is the eternal God, and we have his word in us, his, uh, abiding in us, as how Jesus will put it to the Pharisees, he'll say, I know you, ye have not the Father's word abiding in you. But if we have that word abiding in us, what will we do? We will follow him. In none of these actions are we saying that we're perfect in receiving him, perfect in believing him our faith is not a perfect faith it can never be it has difficulties <laughs> but notice it is not the strength of our faith it is simply the one we're following that saves us it is the one that we receive that saves us it's not the act of our receiving him it's not the act of our following him it's him and so what we do is we take away the distance between us and Christ in the, in the use of these verbs and prepositions in the New Testament. The other way that Jesus will say it in um, Matthew chapter 19 is, come after me. Right? If, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. What does that mean? Well, let's put it in the language of John 10. Stop hearing someone else's voice, including your own. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Follow me. Following Jesus is tantamount, scripturally speaking, to believing Jesus. So we can ask ourselves, have we received Christ as he is presented in scripture? Or are, are, are we like, like W.C. Fields? Some of you don't know who that is. I'm dating myself. I get that. But he was a very popular uh, comedian in the, in the first third, uh, sorry, the second third of the, of the uh, 20th century. And he was a, 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 a devout, if you will, unbeliever. And he was in the hospital dying. 
And he was looking for a Bible. And someone finally brought him a Bible. And one of his friends came in knowing he was an unbeliever, a staunch unbeliever. And he asked him, why are you looking at the Bible? What are you doing? Are you, are you looking for faith? He said, no, I'm looking for loopholes. Yeah, that's what he said. Well, that's not receiving Christ, is it? No. No. We can ask ourselves, have we received Christ in that way, in the way that he truly is, as he's presented in the Bible? And we can also ask ourselves, do I follow Christ? Am I following him? Am I one of those sheep that hear his voice and follow him? That is a description of what faith is, beloved. Notice, Jesus has taken it out of the realm of of the confusing and ephemeral and mystical, and he's put real legs to what faith is and does for us. This is a a kind of condescension. Now let us not, as we said a moment ago, pervert that condescension of Christ and make faith the work that saves. Let's not do that. Let's remember that it is the object of our faith that saves. His perfection his doing, his dying. But let us also have faith as it is presented to us in Scripture here so far as believing, as receiving, and as following. Beloved, you cannot believe in Christ without following him. Believing and following are the same thing. My sheep hear my voice. They will not follow the voice of strangers. Now, we may struggle sometimes. We may struggle over, over the remnants of corruption as they affect our will. And we may say, this is a hard saying, like people said to Christ. We may say, I, I, I find in myself, like Paul will say in Romans chapter 7, the will to do what is good, but not the execution of it. I delight after the law of God in the inward man, but I find a different law in my members warring against the law of my mind. Of course, our faith is not perfect, beloved. The Lord has not granted that grace in this life. But he has granted these descriptions of faith that we might examine ourselves. Do you believe in Christ? Do you receive him? Do you walk in him? Are you rooted in him? Do you follow him? Well, these are, these are questions that bring this saving faith into a greater focus. And they help us to understand whether or not it is indeed a saving faith that we possess because as we move on in our study and as we've already touched on, we're going to see that there are faiths that don't save. Right? And we don't want to partake of those faiths. The third one is coming to Christ. Coming to Christ. Again, we're taking away the space between us and Christ, coming unto him. So turn with me to John chapter 6 for this one. We'll begin our reading in verse 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Do you see how Jesus equates coming and believing there? He that cometh to me shall never hunger, 
He that believeth on me shall never thirst. You see how those are put in what we, what we would call grammatically apposition to one another. They're saying the same thing. It's not, you know, thirsting is one thing and hungering is another thing. They both are drawing us to Christ for everything that we need. And Jesus will say, he that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said to you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall, not see me, shall come to me. And he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. We have a phrase in our English language, don't we? We say, seeing is believing. In this passage, seeing is not believing. Jesus will distinguish seeing from believing. He will distinguish seeing from coming. Now, what did they see? Let's remember what they saw. Earlier in this passage, Jesus is teaching them, and they're all hearing him gladly. And then he makes the 5,000 to sit down, and he collects a few loaves and fish, and he multiplies that so as to, uh, to feed 5,000 men with the women and children that were there also. 20,000 people, 25,000 people, I don't know how many, but a lot. Out of a few fish and loaves. Okay? They understand what he has just done, and they are ready, John will say earlier in this chapter, to take him by force and make him king. They're ready to confess him as King Messiah. Why? As I've told you before, because this guy is our king. Man, he can make bread out of nothing. We'll never have to work again. If this man is our king, I mean, there's, there's never been a king like this. Jesus says, oh yeah, you've seen me. That is, you've seen me work, but you have not believed in me. And it's the will of my Father that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth in him. Or, he will say it this way, you will come to me. What do you mean, Jesus? We're right here. He's not talking about physical proximity, is he? He's talking about coming to him in all that he is. To take away the space that would separate you from Christ and instead to be united to him by faith. This is to come to Christ. And once again, we have this verb of motion and this preposition of union with Christ. So that we're not left to the ephemeral only, that spiritual mystical stuff that flits around our heads that's like soap in the shower and we can't get a grip on it. No, Jesus has said, it's believing in me, it's receiving me, it's following me, and it's coming to me. Beloved, we can ask ourselves those questions. And do you see the advancement that we can make in asking ourselves those questions? Have I received Christ as he is in the Bible? 
Is that Jesus, my Jesus? Have you followed him? Have you heard his voice, his commandment, and said, this is my way. Walk ye in it, and have you followed behind him? Have you come in behind him? Have you come after him? He said, you will come to me, not just after me, but to me. And that's another, yet another description of faith. Have you come to Christ and found yourself like the gathering demoniac, clothed and kneeled and in your right mind before Christ, having come to him? Not like the devils came to him when that man was inhabited by a legion of devils. They came to him too, but not in that way. In the way that says, Lord, thou art my Lord, I have come to thee for my life, for my sustenance, for my everything. It comes of thee and I come to thee. Is that your faith? Is that getting closer to describing what your faith is? You see these wonderful things. And to leave it simply in the, in the genre of mental ascent is not to do us any good at all. Because it's not, it's not where the Bible leaves it. There, there's another. We won't have time to look at it today. But I do want to look at it with you, Lord willing, next week. And we will, we will see uh, a, a variety of terms that all have the same sort of understanding. The Bible presents it in the Old and New Testament as resting, rolling, um, abiding. There are these other words of motion and, and, if you will, status that speak of this. Um, we don't translate it as rolling in the Bible. Uh, in, in, in the Old Testament, we have this, this command in Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord. That's how it's translated in your English version. Literally, it's the Hebrew word galal from which we get the same city. You remember Gilgal? <coughs> rolling. It's to roll yourself over upon the Lord. Or it is to rest upon Him. And all of these words are given to us in Scripture to round out the understanding of faith and put it in these verbs of motion so that we might be able, beloved, to ask ourselves, am I abiding in Christ? Have I come to him? Am I walking in him? Am I rooted in him? Do I believe in him? Have I received him? Am I following him? And when we examine our faith in that way, number one, we will certainly see our deficiencies. We will see that. But we will also be able to determine, won't we? as to whether or not Christ is there at the front of each of those terms. That we have, it is Him that we have received. It is Him that we follow. It is Him that we believe. It is indeed Him that we have come to. And so then we will be disabused of any hope in our faith, no faith in faith, but we will have everything. We will have our everything in Christ. Beloved, that's where it is. And this is why the Bible takes us this last 
step in explaining what saving faith is to us. And I'd like to do that one more week with you next week to look at a few more terms that the Bible uses so that we can get that full orb, that, that, that global look at what the Bible says about faith and what it truly is. There's so much confusion over that today, beloved. I, I want to make sure you're not confused, or at least that the Lord would have all of these means at his disposal to open our understanding and grant to us not an empty assurance, but an assurance that is founded upon examining our faith, as we heard earlier from Paul in First, Second Corinthians 13.5. With that, then, let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the wondrous condescension that we have seen here in Thy Word pertaining to these explanations, examples, analogies, uh, verbs of movement, prepositions, the, the very language that Thou hast used to teach us about faith. Oh, we thank Thee, Lord, that it is not our faith that Thou dost find pleasing but that it is indeed Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And that our faith, as we have confessed in our confession of faith, is the alone instrument. It is simply that, that empty hand. Oh Lord, we pray, disabuse us of having faith in faith. And help us instead to come to Christ, to follow Christ, to receive Christ. And in those things, Lord, we pray, in having those tools in our basket of self-examination, Lord, we pray, drive us then even more closely and remove every, every remainder of space between us and Christ. We thank Thee, Lord, for salvation for sinners. Certainly, Lord, we we desire that thou wouldst work so in our minds, in our thoughts, in our affections, that we should turn away from every vestige of self-righteousness and turn to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.